0: Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and also talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. How are you doing? I'm your co-host Brent Hinson, And if you've ever read the books uh, The Da Vinci Code or Angels and Demons, our guest today is, is kind of like that character, Robert Langdon. You know, the guy Tom Hanks played in the movie version. That's how I know him. Uh, he's a pro when it comes to runes and Norse pagan symbology. But here's the kicker. He uses that knowledge to help those in corrections and law enforcement uncover how certain symbols are being used as methods of hate by white power prison gangs, neo-Nazis, and racial extremists. Michael Warren as Jim Ross, one of my favorite wrestling broadcasters used to say, business is about to pick up. This could get interesting.
1: You know, when we started talking about the the topic for this episode, I was immediately taken back to, to like junior high and high school because back then, you know, it was real popular for kids, you know, cuz you had to you had to cover your books. You remember having to do that getting the, oh, yeah. the paper sacks and do that. Yeah. I remember people trying to replicate rat and acdc oh yeah (laughs) all those symbols right there and you know that was a sign of being cool when you had those symbols on your books probably not so much in a corrections environment though
0: i would think now i think this is going to be a fascinating topic because uh, as i was researching a little bit this morning some of these symbols when looked at in one context are used as hate symbols but in another context they're not. So it'll be interesting to kind of talk about that a little bit and learn how these are being used in a negative way.
1: You know, we often talk about it on the podcast, how context matters. Mm-hmm. And I think that we're going to find out that it matters even more uh, with the topic we have today. So I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yeah, our well, our guest today is going to be uh, very interesting to talk to. He's worked in the criminal justice field since 2006 as a correctional officer STG specialist and gang instructor. He's also an author, already completing two books in his jail intelligence series, including 2020's Norse Germanic Runes and Symbols Field Reference Guide for Law Enforcement and Corrections, and 2022's The Jail Intelligence Manual. It is our pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Dave Schilling. Thanks for joining us, and uh, man, I think you're going to have some interesting things to uh, educate us on i think today
2: oh thanks for having me on i really appreciate
1: it uh, you, you know what dave i always appreciate when because when we record these things we record the audio but we've got the the video going to help us with the conversation I always appreciate it when people's picture pops up and they've <laughs> got a great haircut and they have facial hair you have both so i appreciate a good looking guy like you man well we have to stick together so yeah, not everybody can pull this off. Just, just saying, <laughs> this look off right here. There's a reason why we're an audio podcast. I'd uh, just say that I don't have a choice. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but man, we, we appreciate you being here today. Uh, so we'll kind of start you out the, the way we normally do. How did sure. you come into this profession? You know, what 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 was it that drew you in? Your career path is different than mine, and, and I'm really interested to know what it was that that said. You know what? That's what I need to do.
2: Um, quite honestly, with corrections, I I kind of fell into it. I had just moved to Rochester looking for a job. My wife-to-be at the time, her father had been in the criminal justice field. He was a cop for many years. And he said, well, have you ever considered working at the jail? I said, well, not really, but I'll put an application in. Things just kind of worked out from there and I found out it was something that I really enjoyed. I have a very different view of corrections that probably was
1: formed uh, more so by watching TV and watching documentaries than probably what is real. When I hear you say that it turns out that you enjoyed it, to me that sounds foreign because I, I can't say the I, same thing, Mike. <laughs> yeah, seriously, <laughs> I, I, the, the
2: the thought of it—I don't want to say it terrifies
1: me, but it scares the living bejeebers out of me. How's
2: that? Uh, that makes sense to me. I—if you only watch television and that's your perception of what corrections is, you're seeing prison fights and mafia style stuff going on constantly guys getting stabbed and all the worst things very it's very dramatic and the truth is most of the day is you spend going around talking to people helping them solve their problems just Kind of getting through the day
1: i guess i should throw out a disclaimer right here right now i'm rewatching oh, sure. the series the walking dead and oh. actually the part <laughs> that i'm in is is where they're holed up in a prison so so we have ah. to add the whole zombie apocalypse thing to, to my my previous quote-unquote knowledge about working in corrections when you came into the field when you first got hired how were your expectations different than what reality ended up being for you what what, what were you expecting going in there
2: um, that was kind of the hard part. Cause I knew enough to know that television wasn't reality. So I went in there kind of a blank slate, I guess, really. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, the first thing I met was a bunch of the quote unquote old timers that were there and I said, Oh, Hey, how's it going? My name's Dave. And I got, yeah, good for you. Go away kid. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know people develop a pretty thick shell a lot of the time working in corrections. But uh, over time, you prove yourself, you gain their respect. What was different from my expectations is is just how heavily regulated corrections really is as far as what you can do, what you can't do, and what you have to do every day to ensure that you know, people get everything they need, that their rights aren't violated. There's a whole lot going on behind the scenes that people don't really realize. I think we
0: got an inkling of that when we had uh, Mike Cantrell on not too long ago. He's the host of the uh, oh, yeah. Prison Officer Podcast. I think you've been a guest on there, and he, he he definitely shed some light on what it was like working in the in the corrections field.
2: Yeah, it's nothing like television. We don't go around and shove people around or anything like that. That's the very last option that we would ever go to, to lay hands on somebody. What I didn't expect a lot of the time was to end up being more of a counselor a lot of the time, especially nowadays with the white hair in my goatee. Yeah, all of a sudden you you know, hey, Dad, can you help me out with something here? Yeah, now you're the old guy. <laughs> uh, the white hair does help gain a little bit of respect, I think, in that regard. People will ask you for some advice thinking, well, he's probably been through a few things, so maybe he can help me out. And it works the same way with staff, too. But but you know what, Dave? You mentioned it a couple of times, and
1: I think it's kind of important to point out. You said you oh. went and you talked to the old timers, and, and eventually you earned their respect and they came around. I think even more so in corrections than on patrol. You're not just trying to gain the respect of your, your fellow correctional officers. Mm-hmm. There also is an earning of respect with, with, with those that you're charged with, with controlling because oh, yes. if you have that respect, that, then it makes your job more manageable.
2: Would that be accurate? Oh, yes. That's a huge part, actually, I left out when I was describing this was uh, uh Rochester, we're about 125,000 people. The inmate population is, out of all that, from the local areas is fairly small. So you see a lot of the same people over and over. If you're brand new, they'll test you out constantly. But well, can I get him to break this rule? What's he gonna do for me? What won't he do? The big key to that is, especially when you're new, really go by that rule book, obey that. You don't have to be a nasty person when you do it, just be firm. It, it's the tagline in corrections, firm, fair, and consistent. But I was surprised that, like
0: even like the smallest of things. I think uh, Mike mentioned somebody asked him to bring in a, a soy sauce packet one time, and it could yeah start such such with such a
2: simple thing like that. It could lead to something totally grandiose. Oh yes, uh, in the prison system here in the state, my daughter works there herself. It, it'll start with stuff like that. Hey, can you do me this little favor? And it progresses on and. Next thing you know, somebody's getting walked out the door because they smuggled drugs in, smuggled cigarettes in. Well, and it's not its not always just administrative things that happen to the
1: person. Oftentimes, there are criminal charges associated oh, yes. with, with what goes on. But you brought up something. I got to ask you this. I don't know how, as a dad, I would feel if my daughter came to me and said, hey, I'm thinking about following in your footsteps and I want to do this job. Was that difficult for you to
2: accept? Did you try and talk her out of it? Uh, How did that conversation go? I didn't try to talk her out of it. I I trust her. So, it was nothing I was worried about. I did get her lined up with one or two people who I trusted up there to kind of watch over, mentor her, that type of thing. Well, it, it probably helps her out a lot that you with your
1: experience, being able to share, share things that you've learned to try and shorten that
2: learning curve for her a little bit. Well, that's just it. It's the big thing I told her was, it's like the movie Roadhouse, be nice until it's time to not be nice.
0: I say that all the time on this podcast.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, it's my original training sergeant taught us that right in academy too. It's And it holds true. Even when you're not being nice, still be nice. God bless Patrick Swayze. Yeah, that's right. Hey, but,
1: but, you know, I I saw a meme uh, here recently that said that the best thing that old uh, police officers can teach new ones is how to get to be an old police officer, passing on that, that knowledge gained through experience. And oftentimes, at least with me, it was gained through negative things that I did that that I could pass
2: on to, to people and say, Hey, don't make the same mistake that I made. Ah, oh, Spot on. When I first got in there, experience with dealing with groups of people was from years past when I was in the army. So I'm like, well, okay, what's going to work as punishment here? Okay, well, it's got to be group punishment, obviously. Yeah, that, that failed utterly and completely. <laughs> <laughs> That's just not going to work. It's Everything's got to be very individualized there. Just like you, most of my experiences were learned by making mistakes and I wouldn't trade that for anything because that was the learning process I needed for all that to really stick. We've talked about training just a little bit,
1: and it's been my experience, very limited experience, that oftentimes some of the most undertrained professionals in the criminal justice field are those that work corrections. And yet they're the ones that have the most constant, most close-up contact with the people that could get them into trouble, get them into a jam. How has training been on your side of things? Has it gotten better since you started? Has it gotten more frequent or are there
2: still uh, some improvements that need to be made? There's always improvements we could make and a lot of it's really dictated on what the budget looks like. Overall, I think training has actually gotten a lot better over the years. We have a very, very robust uh, FTO program at my facility. That's really key to a lot of stuff, I think, is to have a really good FTO program. A lot of corrections you can learn in the six-week academy that there is. You can learn the theory of it. Uh, Where you really learn it is in that FTO stage is where you're out there doing it every day. It's a lot different than being a police officer in the street where you're dealing with a lot of the unknown factors, I think. Within the facility, you know who you're dealing with. That's a given right there. I think the biggest thing to try to teach people is to learn how to develop the proper gut feeling, so to speak, on, hey, this feels like it's sketchy, I shouldn't do this, or I should watch out, or lack of a better term, you almost have to train people how to have a sixth sense a little bit. You know, wait a minute, it's too quiet in here. And people that that are parents actually pick up on it pretty quick <laughs> yeah that, that, that parent
1: <laughs> with a two-year-old uh, when things are probably going the worst is when it's the quietest <laughs> because that
2: yeah. means, so, so there, there's criminal activity afoot uh, generally yeah uh, there's stuff getting smeared everywhere who knows what so <laughs> let's talk about
1: about your early experiences sure when you when you were you know in your first few years in your career what would you say was the m- maybe it's a one defining event where you, you, something happened and you say, well, that was not at all what I expected. And it completely changed the way that you went about doing your work
2: or the way you went about preparing to do your work. Oh, uh, the one defining event was in 2007. We had a suicide in our facility and it was a successful one. And to that point, they hadn't had anybody die there for many, many years before. And I won't go into all the details on it, but yep should have been prevented probably but it really woke me up as to hey i really have to come in here and take very seriously when you know we we walk what we call well-being checks just walking around the cells every 30 minutes or less make sure everybody's okay and a lot of people skim over that because there's 10 other things you're trying to do but it really drove home that we really need to have the basics down and and follow them because If you skip over that, next thing you know, somebody could be dead we don't know. Well, especially when you couple the fact that
1: that there is such a large representation of people suffering from mental illness Mm -hmm. in our lockup facilities, because when when these institutions were shut down. Uh, and these folks no no longer receiving inpatient treatment, where they often end up is in your facility. And and so there has to be that that constant check because you
2: are responsible for those folks once they're taken into custody. Oh, yes, absolutely. Plus, nowadays with fentanyl and everything else that's around, it's it's almost doubled with how uh, vigilant you have to be. Now, I'm sure as far as
0: becoming uh, involved in corrections, there's a certain guideline, handbook, this is how we do things. But there's gotta be, in relation to uh, your, your book, there's gotta be some unwritten rules or unwritten things that you have to pick up on as you move along in your career. Is that what you eventually found out?
2: Oh, absolutely. And luckily I was a little bit older when I came into the career, I was about 35. So I had the advantage already of having been around a little bit, know how to talk to people a little better. It's not a put down to anybody that's maybe 21, 22 years old, but with that life experience I think comes a little bit more wisdom though too. You're a little more willing to just take people as they are rather than maybe going into how you think you need to talk to people. One of the biggest things I try to teach newer folks is figure out who you are, be yourself, then be that person all the time. You shouldn't have to put on a different face walking in the jail than you do on the street as far as how you deal with people. And and it's funny that you kind of
1: started the whole episode off talking about most of your day is spent walking around and talking with people. Sometimes that talking with people is is gathering intelligence. Sometimes it's doing counseling, but if you're unable to do that, you're probably not gonna be a very successful correctional officer. That's spot on correct and there's an officer safety aspect of that and in fact uh you wrote a Mm -hmm. book called the jail intelligence manual that talking is where intelligence is gathered so so why don't you talk to brent and i like we don't know anything because we probably don't what what is the importance (laughs) of gathering intelligence in a correctional environment why is that why is that topic so important that you literally wrote a book on it for people in the field
2: Well, I feel that topic is really important because uh, first and foremost, it contributes to the safety and security of the facility. Um, If you have a housing unit where you have a group of guys who are extorting the entire unit, essentially, engaging in illegal activity, they're in charge of the drugs that are coming in or trying to manipulate staff, any number of scenarios, that's all stuff that you're gonna pick up if you're getting out from behind that post, walking and talking, you're gonna overhear conversations, You'll do your cell searches, you'll find notes that are written. And a lot of it contributes to the safety of the facility directly. And at the same time, a lot of it might deal with outside activity as well. Well, let me stop you there for a second if I could, because you, you, you mentioned
1: specifically, you might find notes. Why? I mean, they know they're gonna be cell searches, right? So mm-hmm. so why, why would they go and use that? Is it because sometimes maybe people charged with that job, become a little bit complacent and don't do as thorough of a search as they should, because, hey, you know, I've searched this cell five times and never found anything uh, because I'll share my experience here. I cannot believe the number of people in a correctional environment that will get on a phone and immediately after the little recording comes on and says, hey, just so you know, this call is from you know, this correctional facility, the call is being recorded or monitored. They get on there and admit to, to a crime. Why then? Would somebody who knows that stuff's going on, why would they resort to that type of communication device,
2: the note, to talk about criminal activity? Well, what a lot of it is, some of it's complacency. I don't doubt that. Uh, More of it is the fact that we have a lot of different things we have to get done through the day, cell searches being one of them. People are going to hurry through that stuff. The other factor is education. People might not even know what they're looking at some of the time. And that's kind of where my book comes into play with, you know, let's get some training and what some of the different symbology is about, what they might be talking about, and you might actually be able to make a criminal case out of it in some cases, or contribute to the guy's current case that he has going on. In in the cell
1: searches that you were talking about, have you ever developed intelligence that perhaps increased
2: the safety uh, of either other inmates or for correctional officers? Oh, I would say absolutely. There's been guys who have made threats before and they've been pulled out of the unit, that type of thing. There's been guys who have sent notes to each other for trying to form a relationship with inside the jail with each other. And that was something we also had to watch out for as well. Why is it important to watch out for that? There's a law, Priya, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. So it's one of those things, inmate sexual activity, that's one thing. Yeah, I won't give any details on any of that as far as who, what, even when. But if we know that guys are trying to get settled up together for that purpose, that's something that we really need to watch out for because we don't know if, if they're both going into this voluntarily or not. That's really the big thing with that. And we're trying to avoid anybody being sexually abused. There's a Priya has zero tolerance to it. So that's something we really, really have to watch out for. Because we're trying to protect everybody.
1: Well, you said that several times and it seems like a lot of your activity, if not most of your activity, is geared toward keeping the inmate safe. You know, that's the reason for doing the checks. It's for all these things. It sounds counterintuitive, but it sounds like a lot of the reason for doing the intelligence gathering is to assist you in that job of keeping the inmates safe. It also keeps the correctional officer safe, but it
2: seems like there's more benefit on their side. Oh yeah, there can be. The side of it we really didn't go into a whole lot was once we start collecting intel on who different gang members might be. And we start looking at that and where that affects things is not just within our facility, but once they get sent up to the prison system, that information gets shared with whoever's in the prison system at that time, ideally it's not always a perfect system as far as info being passed back and forth but that's the kind of thing that's really important for the prison and also they can document these guys and track them at the same time now you had said that uh that you get a lot of repeat
1: visitors at your at your facility so i would have to imagine that, that having a robust intelligence gathering mechanism in place makes it much easier for you the next time they come into your facility because I'm not starting with a clean slate. I've already got information on this person that is going to help me because if I know they're a member of a certain gang, that then I don't need to find that out. I can go ahead and start addressing it that way.
2: Yeah, correct. And where that all falls in is uh, we have a programs department there. They oversee all the different inmate programs for rehabilitation, for going to gym, for all that. But at the same time, they're also in charge of our classification system. So that type of info would fall squarely into that. And it's a point system. And the higher on the point system you are, that's going to dictate when you come in the facility, how many days you might spend an intake, where we're watching to see what kind of activity you're up to. It helps us gauge risk, really, is what that does.
1: So, so what you're saying is that when somebody comes into your facility, there's almost like a temporary place that they go for the purposes yeah. of developing intelligence about the person in the way, almost establishing what their norm is. Is that, is, that, is that accurate? Yep,
2: spot on. And when you speak of intelligence, it's uh, not just for criminal activity, but we're assessing them for mental health. We're assessing their medical needs. We're keeping an eye on them just to see how they are behaviorally overall. Uh, what are they up to? Um, It's a place where we can keep an eye on them a little bit closer just to observe them for a few days. Brent, it's kind of like my misconceptions are are popping up
1: here because how often on TV do you see somebody when they come into jail, they're just immediately thrown into a cell and and they walk away and no one's watching them and no one's paying attention to them. It it sounds like there's a lot more thought, intentional activity that goes up at the very beginning of their incarceration that makes it safer at the end.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, when you're watching on movies and TVs, you're trying to condense this whole thing just to kind of move the plot along. Whereas, oh, yeah, we're, we're learning that there is much more that goes into it. Now, you mentioned something earlier about, you know, these notes. I'm assuming. at at that point, when you're going through these searches and you come across these notes, that's where symbology comes in for you as you start to see maybe these certain symbols that you're unfamiliar with. And maybe it takes you down a rabbit hole because this is something that is very uh, intriguing. I mean, you have to really do some deep research to figure out what some of these symbols mean, right?
2: Ah, yeah. And I think the biggest thing I tell anybody is if you're Going into this, you can learn the basics of the symbols for the gangs overall, but to really know about one in-depth, it's more of a lifetime study, it seems like. It's felt that way, at least. It's not just notes that we assess. We're also looking at inmates spend a lot of their time drawing artwork, a lot of really impressive artwork, actually. And you'll find a lot of stuff, well, with white supremacists, for instance, uh, you'll see a lot of Viking-type symbology, uh, different runes that are strewn throughout there are hidden within it. Gonna have to explain that just a little bit further. You said hidden within it is almost like a a
1: Where's Waldo thing, where, where you've got a a larger picture, but there'll be there'll be something hidden specifically within that carries a much more significant and specific message.
2: Yes, uh, one example I can think of is a fellow who had uh, he's still around, but he has a very large kind of a circular swastika tattooed over his entire back. And from a distance, you wouldn't think much of it. It just looks like it might be some kind of knotwork that's interwoven together. When you get close to it, all of a sudden you have some runes that are in there. You have the whole reference to blood and soil, as they call it, within some of the old Nazi beliefs. You'll start seeing images of soldiers marching. You'll see all kinds of different things that start to pop out of it. And it's all very subtle, so you have to sit and kind of, you have to examine it
0: well this is where it gets kind of murky because like i I alluded to earlier some of these Mm -hmm. wounds are still used in non-racist forms and so there's some context that has to go into certain things
2: i guess yeah discernment is is key to all this my basic way of discernment is if you're looking at it and you start seeing world war ii imagery come in there anything that says 1488 the 14 words of david lane for instance anyone listening, the 14 words of David Lane are, we must secure the existence of our people in a future for white children. Uh, the 88 refers to the eighth letter of the alphabet, the H for Heil Hitler. Um, if we start seeing that type of stuff creep in, any reference to Aryans, for instance, that's a key indicator as well. The origin of the word Aryan actually comes from the early 19th, uh, late 19th, early 20th century. It was a uh, out of a book actually called The Secret Doctrine by a lady from Russia named Helena Blavatsky. She said that the Aryan race descended from the original inhabitants of Atlantis. Hitler liked that idea. He adopted that and it's been in play ever since and it's a myth. So you might find some of these, this symbology
1: uh, in notes that, that, that are passed between inmates. Yep, symbology or specific wording, yeah. Okay, and, and then you might also find it in body art, tattoos. Oh, everywhere. How important then when somebody's coming into a facility is getting information about their tattoos? Because it would seem that that would be a very important place to gather information that is going
2: to direct your, your intelligence gathering. Ah, that's spot on correct. Everybody that comes into our facility gets their tattoo pictures done. It doesn't matter what tattoo they have. And the reason for that is tattoos a lot of the time could be almost be considered to be like a fingerprint. They tend to be unique to the person. There have been times that tattoos have been referenced to from our facility to identify somebody who was found dead. It was maybe the only way they could identify the body. It plays into a lot more factors than just identifying a gang member necessarily. There are really quite a few factors to that. Plus, like you also mentioned, the symbology that comes into play with when you're finding gang tattoos, white power tattoos, a lot of them tend to be very specific to that. Although a lot of guys, once again, they might have some Viking imagery, a big Viking warrior on their arm. And then you're looking around at the fill and the shading to see, is there anything that's hidden away within that? It would seem too that if you have somebody who is a repeat visitor to your facility,
1: That any tattoos that have been added since the last time might be an indication on what has been going on in that person's life. Oh yes, and that might a a change in affiliation or or maybe one of the most you know again from movies thing that people talk about are the teardrops. But they can tell a story about what's been going on in that person's life since the last time they were incarcerated. Correct.
2: What I've seen is, uh, well, you reference the teardrops, and that's kind of funny. I'm not sure if it's a state or a regional thing, but somewhere along the line, they became like the spider web on the elbow, they became fashionable and you'll see all kinds of people with teardrop tattoos and they have no idea. And then you get a genuine gangbanger in there who's earned his teardrops and he's like, hey, what's this crap?
1: (laughs) You, You wrote this book on these symbols that had to involve a lot of research and intelligence gathering. Obviously, in your mind, it carries a great deal of importance. How do you teach this type of thing to a new correctional officer? How how do you get the message across, number one, that, hey, this is something you need to do, and then here's the way of going about it? Well, really, when
2: somebody's a new correctional officer, I'm not concerned with that they're able to necessarily translate all that stuff, anything like that. What they do need is a basic familiarity with the symbol and goal wait a minute, I've seen that before, at least put the connection together that, hey, there might be something going on here. Let's let's get that checked out. That's what's really going to be important as a new officer. They have so many other things that they're, they're just trying to get the routine down for one. So we try not to overwhelm them too much. But at the same time, some of the best leads you get are from the new guys who are like, wait a minute, I just saw that in class. Well, it's interesting to
1: me. You said you, you worked on this case out in Utah. So, so, your expertise is being used across the country when it comes to this symbology. So, it seems like that this symbology really has the ability to give correctional officers a much firmer understanding of who they're dealing
2: with and what they're dealing with and what might result from dealing with that person. Exactly. For what it's worth, I don't think all prison systems are created equally. Uh, Some states do have some prisons that are extremely violent. California, for instance, Florida. It can be more Midwestern-type states like Kansas. I get requests from all of those states as far as, hey, can I run this by you to see what this might be? You know, a lot of it is when we talk about the notes that are written, somebody might write an entire letter out in runes to another guy in the hopes that oh, correctional staff are too busy, they're not really gonna look at that and just hope it kinda skims through the system that way.
0: Now, one thing that I think we glanced over a little bit is why are they uh, these uh, gangs or, or these, uh, these people using this specific runic
2: alphabet? What draws them to this uh, language? Well, the runes, uh, normally they're called the Germanic runes because they come from that system of Germanic languages from way back. Old Norse specifically onto languages like English, German, the Northern European languages, that type of thing. And what it's seen as is a tie to what they see as being a glorious past. We had the great runic revival right before World War II in Germany, where runes were adopted and given different meanings by the Nazis. So a lot of that is carryover from that as well. Guys tend to stick with that. And really what I tell people is when you're looking for this stuff, and you're trying to find indicators of what uh, white supremacists might be up to, don't necessarily look for a new trend. Look for something old, because it's going to be something old almost every time. In this case, a language that, you know, a written alphabet that goes back to roughly 200 AD. It's funny that that he said this, that they might write
1: an entire letter this way. I think in a lot of this, I'm basing upon how I think I would react. I think a lot of times when we deal with people in that environment, we look at them as less than we look at them as less than intelligent. Perhaps they flunked out of school for whatever reason, but they were able to go and learn this ancient way of communicating that's and so, point. so, yeah. so, they're, so yeah. they're not stupid, and and we go in thinking they are. Then we're setting ourselves up to be taken advantage of or to get hurt. Man, it sounds like it requires a lot of work, a lot of thought, a lot of training, mm-hmm. if you will,
2: to get proficient. So they can communicate this way. Oh, definitely, and uh, in some of the prison systems, when guys go in and they join up with a group and. It might be one of the also true groups where they're practicing their religion within the prison system. Uh, before a guy is fully accepted, they have to go through a number of different knowledge tests, one of them being the runes. They have to be able to recite, you know, know what every letter is that's there and be able to tell what the meanings are and be able to basically be fluent in it. So correctional officers are behind the eight ball on this because we have... 10,000 other things to do, and we're not going to sit and learn one specific alphabet necessarily. You have all kinds of other things to do. I
1: mean, you've got to write your own reports, you know, and you have to do all these checks. And there's certain things that have to be done on a daily basis. But it, it seems like, please correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like having a dedicated intelligence unit would be incredibly valuable in a corrections environment so that they can provide context if i came to him and said listen i found this i don't know what it means i don't know if it's important or not but here it is and having that
2: sage that that could uh, guide me it seems like it would make things a lot safer i believe it does the reason i wrote the jail intelligence manual in the first place was uh, i always joke Because uh, small and medium-sized facilities don't often have the budget or the resources to support a full-time person, much less a unit doing that. So this is a way for people to get going with this, with the resources they have at hand, without having to have fancy software being bought in, without all the other extras necessarily. What it requires, though, is one or two people that are motivated to do it.
0: You know what it sounds like, Mike? It sounds like uh, being a parent, and there's like some new trend or some new uh, initialized song title, and you're like, "What is this? Something?
2: Should I know what
1: this <laughs> yeah. means?" I mean, that's what it <laughs> yeah. kind of feels like. Here's what I, he he just kind of alluded to, it, and you know, when you go back to the nine eleven hearings, you know, one of the biggest problems they found with the american criminal justice system is that the agencies within the criminal justice system don't talk to each other and so oh. it, it, how, how is it on the correctional side because maybe these small agencies don't have the budget or staffing for a full-time unit but it seems like mm-hmm. there was some type of network where the jails and the prisons and all this stuff could talk to each other and kind of had this place where they brought in the information so that I could go and you do the, the correctional form of Google to, to find out about yeah. this particular message. How, how good are these correctional institutes at, at talking to each other?
2: Oh, man, that's uh, we're going anywhere from zero to 100 on that. It really depends on the mindset of people. I believe in the almost 18 years I've been doing this, it's gotten a lot better. Uh, When I first came into this line of work, a lot of people tended to keep that really close to themselves, thinking I have something and I'm not going to share it because somebody's going to steal it. That's the worst thing you can do because any intelligence always has a shelf life on it. And if you don't share it, it's useless over time.
0: I mean, you, you look at the, the DNA database, the fingerprint database. I mean, those things are nothing but tools to help you solve crimes or, or to make society safer. Why we're not doing more of those types of things, that kind of boggles my mind.
2: There are ways that uh, correctional officers from different places can network. Um, I would recommend anybody getting into this, join one of the gang investigator associations in your region. That's going to be key to a lot. Uh, develop those contacts go to conferences. Don't be a wallflower when you're at a conference. Just go up to people. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm from here looking to make some ties. And people are amazingly open to that. Well, it would seem like though too,
1: that internally, we need to make sure that when an officer brings us potential information that even if it turns out to be nothing, we we should be grateful to them and tell them, Hey, you did the right thing. You saw something that you weren't sure of coming and talking to us about it, even though it turned out to be nothing was the right thing to do. Because if if we roll our eyes at him and say, listen, you know, any person with six months on the job would know that, you know, I can't believe you didn't know that, that we're shutting them down from bringing us intelligence in the future. And as you said, intelligence has a, a short shelf life. And yeah. even though a lot of the symbols are old, there are new ways of incorporating them. And, and so, oh, with right. that, we have to constantly be getting that
2: new information. Yeah. And without that, I'd rather have a pile of information with 80% of it be garbage with that 20% of good in there. Now, we can sift through that. That's That's our job to do that. Or if we are lucky enough to be in an agency where we have an Intel analyst that we can work with, start shooting it to them where they can start to filter through it. One of the two. I think what people should be commended for when they bring you information is don't tell them, oh, it was awesome or it was terrible info. uh, Commend them for their attention to detail. When I was assigned to DEA, we we did a lot of work with phones. And and
1: you might have a phone number that by itself meant nothing but it's when you started having compiling them together that you started getting an idea of what the picture looked like. And it seems like the same thing here that you might get a piece of the puzzle over here. And it may not mean anything by itself, but in a couple months, maybe I get another piece of intelligence over here. And now I start to get this clearer picture, but that has to be
2: regular and ongoing in order to be most effective. Well, one example is uh, visiting lists. If a place uses an outside vendor for visiting, Normally those visitors will be checked the night before, just run a quick check on them for warrants, that type of thing. But then go back into your own database and enter them as a known associate as a visitor on whichever inmate. And it doesn't matter who that visitor is because who knows what that link chart might look like afterwards if you're trying to work a case. And it might not even be for their current stay, it could be for a future
1: stay that you've got right. that information and you st- now things are starting to make sense because we're putting all the pieces together.
2: Right. And it might not even be a part of this person's criminal network, but oh, wait, this is a per- this is a place where they go crash. It's where they go hide.
1: Yeah. So if, they, so, if they get a warrant down in the future and I need to go figure out where, to, where I need to go and look for them to gather them up, th- then right. I've got places that I can start. I'm not starting
2: cold. Some of that is the hardest thing, I suppose, really to teach to correctional staff is it's these little puzzle pieces that you put in there. You're not going to get immediate gratification from it. This is something you might see happen five years later. It, that's just the name of the game. That's how it all works. Yeah, very rarely does a scientist go into a
1: lab and conduct an experiment and, and come up with the answer right away, the cure right away. It, it's something that's oh, done over yeah. time, putting little pieces of data together that eventually leads to it. But you can't get to that point unless you're doing the little pieces of data, the
2: little pieces of intelligence. Right. And the other thing that I really work to impart to people is... Uh, as correctional staff, we're not not—we're not cops. We are different. We don't go in and just interrogate people in a unit when we're working. We don't interrogate at all. We elicit information. If anything, somebody starts talking, just pop out a question, oh, what's that? And you might be surprised at the answer you get because a lot of guys, that appeals to their sense of pride. I mentioned
0: you have got Two books that you've written. One was the uh, the Jail Intelligence Manual. The other one, the Norse-Germanic Runes and Symbols Field Reference Guide. And it's a part of uh, what's called your Jail Intelligence Series. So are you working on something in the future that's going to be coming out soon? Or are
2: you going to be adding to that series? Yeah, what I'm hoping to add to that series is uh, another piece to go with the Jail Intelligence Manual itself. It's going to be called the Jail Intelligence Workbook as a tentative title, and what that's going to be is when a smaller facility wants to start implementing some of these types of practices, it'll be essentially a book that they can open up, go from A to Z. Okay, this is how I go through. This is what I have to assess. What do I have available to me? What can I work with here? What do we currently have in place? What do we need to add? Uh, Do we need to start adding a definite tattoo picture sequence to when we book people in? You know, to make sure those tattoo pictures are put in, documented. Once again, if you have somebody who's knowledgeable somewhat on the gangs, I I don't care what booking staff put down for a description on the tattoos. I'm going to look at those. I'll relabel those. That's fine. I just want them to be in there. So it's going to be these little changes. I I know that you do a lot of training for your agency, but do you provide Mm -hmm.
1: training for for outside agencies on these topics? Ah, Yes. Actually starting with you guys here coming up pretty soon, so. i going to be doing some recording for Virtual Academy. What, what can somebody expect if they were to bring you in to do some training with their their, their folks? What, what type of, of information can they expect their
2: folks to walk away with that's going to make them safer and better at their job? Well, um, we're going to talk a lot about simply how to talk to people and how to gather information. Uh, Within a facility, as a correctional officer, you're not going to be doing a huge amount of what we would call analysis. You might just not have time for it. You're going to gather the pieces. Uh, What we're going to talk about primarily is how to go about gathering those pieces without putting yourself at risk. Essentially, we have to teach people how to elicit information. A lot of officers want to go into this, and they'd love to go up to somebody and say, I know you're a member of the Gangster Disciples. You need to tell me about what you're all up to. Show me what your manifesto is. And you're gonna shut everything off. I've I've had that happen before, where people have gone in and done that, and I'm like, oh no. But I'll go into the unit and work that unit. You know, a month later, and the guy will shoot up to me and go, "Man, what's that guy's trip? What are you talking about? Oh, he's asking me about all this weird stuff." Ugh. I said, "I ah, just ignore it."
0: Sounds like he's been <laughs> watching a lot of TV and films. <laughs> <it's>. <laughs> well,
2: exactly. I'm just like, oh, are you gonna pull out a nightstick next and threaten the guy? I mean you just can't do that if you go in there and you come across as overbearing you shut down the entire conversation. The whole idea is to let guys talk freely uh, we have a guy we have guys on average from six to nine months within the jail. over that time correctional officers yeah they have to walk, obey the rules and all that but we, they become very comfortable around us especially if we don't if we don't appear that we're listening to their phone conversations all that, as long as they're being peaceful and the place is cleaned up, life is good. So that's that's really the key. It's a, it's a passive method of gathering intel, but it does work very, very well within that setting because the more comfortable people are, the more open they are with stuff sometimes. Just for our listeners out there, when we
1: talk about people, inmates becoming more comfortable, it doesn't mean that that's a compromise of officer safety. It, it's Correct. just a, a, a way of treating people as people for the purposes Uh, of ensuring their safety and and
2: gathering information that may help with the the safety of correctional officers. Because the big thing is you're going to come across, it's like, look, you're on the phone, you're doing your business. You're not beating people up. You're not extorting other people. You're obeying the rules. And that's where my job ends right there, even though it doesn't quite. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm just going to throw it
1: out there. I think that society would be a lot better off if we were better at talking with each other and listening often Mm -hmm. more than we talk. This isn't just something that, that I think is
2: applicable within the correctional setting. I think it's a society needs to do a better job. Oh, spot on, correct. Everybody has a voice and wants to be heard, but you know, not many people are doing the listening, unfortunately. And this here is, is for my friend, Brent. As uh,
1: some people that I look up to very highly, Greg Williams and Brian Marin like to say, most of the time people don't want their way, they want their say. And in a correctional mm-hmm. environment, Allowing them to have their say oftentimes can produce intelligence that is going to help us down the road if, if we're willing to listen and we're intentional about it.
2: I think the key word there is intentional. When you're listening to a person, they understand you have to have your head on a swivel, look around, but at the same time, listen to what the person is saying if you have to, uh, yank out a piece of paper, jot a few notes. I think one of the biggest things as a CEO is to go in... And when you say you're gonna do something for somebody, follow through with that and make sure you do it. And if you don't get that done for them, it's okay to say, hey, I'm sorry I didn't get that done. This happened. And just own everything that you do, own your actions. Man, you almost sound like that that inmates are people
1: because most of us appreciate it when people do what they say they're going to do. And if they're not able to just just say, hey, listen, I wasn't able to get it done. Here's why. Just owning up to it. So if
2: we treat people as people, we're probably going to get better results. Absolutely. And not everybody in jail is necessarily a terrible person. It really depends who you're talking about, I suppose. but 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 even they can provide information to you. They can provide
1: oh, yes. intelligence. Dave, as we're wrapping things up here, I just want to say from me, I appreciate those in the correctional field because I am a pretty self-aware guy and I'm pretty sure I would not do very well in that environment because I I, I know who I am and I know how I do things, but I appreciate the folks who do because you literally- Not only keep them safe, keep each other safe, but you keep society safe with what you do. So I appreciate your service, my brother. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Brent, seems like, and this seems to be a recurring theme, that uh, our profession would be better and we'd be safer if we just listened
0: listened and in and, and dave's case reading more and researching like you're always preaching you're always you got two books going at uh at one time so it seems like that's a <laughs> solution to many of our our problems
1: uh, uh, throwing it out there being willing to share you know it's, yes. not, it's not enough to gather that stuff we have to be willing to share with each other and, and not think that somebody's going to get get praise or credit for it it really shouldn't matter
0: and if you would like to find out more about uh, Dave's books, we're going to have links to uh, both of them in the show notes to this page. But you can also go straight to his source if you want to talk about your website a little bit, Dave. I'll allow you an opportunity to uh,
2: kind of uh, promote that a little bit. Oh, sure. Uh, name of my website is runeresearch.com, R U N E, research, all one word. I provide a little bit of information on the classes that I give. Uh, there's a contact form on there as well. So, Anybody that wants to reach out, please feel free. I am open to helping anybody. Very quick turnaround time on emails, that type of thing. The only time you might not get a response immediately is if I'm actually working and I don't have access to that email, but that would be about it.
0: Well, it's a fascinating topic just on its own and, and just going over, I obviously I haven't read the entirety of your book, but just looking at some of the passages from it and some materials related to it, eye-opening stuff here.
2: You know straight up history channel type stuff hopefully a little more accurate but yeah <laughs> you can find links to all
0: that stuff in the uh, show notes page of this particular episode and you can find all of our past episodes between the lines with virtualacademy.com david it's been eye-opening and really uh, a lot of fun to talk to you about this topic today
2: oh thank you i appreciate being on here this is great